Good morning. This morning's reading is in two parts. The first part is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 25, and that is page 1128 in the Church Bibles. The second part of the reading is from Romans 3, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteousness will live by faith. God's wrath against sinful humanity. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they know God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator for who is forever praised. Amen. We turn, turn to the second reading which is Romans 3 verses 21 to 24 and that's page 1130 in the church bible. Righteousness through faith. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning, everyone. First of all, can you hear me okay? I think you should be able to, judging by the amount coming back from me. Yeah, good. Should we just pray briefly before we, before we begin? Loving Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you will draw close to us as we seek to draw close to you. Will you give us hearts which are receptive to you this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who can't read from a long distance away, my name is Richard. I'm a church member here. And my task this morning is to carry on with, with Romans. And of course, we began, didn't we, last week um, by setting the scene for our Romans series. We looked, amongst other things, at the confidence that the writer Paul has in the good news about Jesus as the power of God for the salvation of everyone who puts their trust in him. We were reminded that the letter would take us on an amazing and glorious journey as we saw how God's loving purposes have made our rescue possible. And we enjoyed the picture of that journey as a mountain we would be ascending and taking in the view. But we were also told that we would be starting in a pretty sobering place as we thought about the reason that the rescue mission was required in the first place, the human problem that the Bible calls sin. And that's where we are this morning. I'm going to suggest we've actually selected a few verses which Helen kindly read uh, for us a moment ago, but really these themes are, un are unpacked across the whole of Romans chapters 1 to 3. So I'm going to suggest go home and read Romans 1 to 3 um, with a large mug of coffee um, or something stronger, no, a large mug of coffee, um, because you actually get a, a much better picture of the, of the overall position, I think, by doing that. Second thing I'm going to do is to say, if you can, have a quick look at your Bibles now. If you've got one to hand, it's on page 1128. It might just be helpful to have that available, not least so you can check what I'm saying. Um, it's also the case that we're going to be talking about some news which is, on the face of it, not very good news for us. Um, we're talking about sin and God's response to sin. And uh, I just want to say, hang in there, because good news is coming. Romans is about good news in the end. Um, stick with it, please. Uh, we'll get there. But to begin with, imagine, if, if you will, that you've got a friend who's a doctor. You probably all have friends who are doctors, or some of you will. Um, but uh, that friend invites you for a meal, and you go, and it's lovely. Delicious meal, really nice main course, nice glass of wine, really, really good evening. But end of the main course, you've got a little bit of room left, and you're just sort of thinking, I wonder if there's pudding. You start looking around the kitchen, hopefully, trying not to make it too obvious that you're just seeing if there might be something that's coming along. And all of a sudden, your host says, oh, um, sorry, I nearly, nearly forgot. Um, and she reaches down into a medical bag and pulls out a, a, some, some tablets, a packet of tablets. Look, she says, you all have heard, won't you, about these, these, these infections that people get, which are really hard to treat. Because the bacteria that cause them, superbugs, 
are so resistant to all the antibiotics we have. Well, look, the drugs here in my hand, these are brand new. They've just been approved for use, and they're the answer. Let me tell you, they're the answer. They're really powerful, and nothing can resist them. They are death to superbugs. Would you like some? Resisting the temptation to say, oh, I'd rather hope there might be a bit of, a bit of rhubarb crumble, <laughs> you, 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 you quickly remember your manners and you reply politely, oh, well, no, thanks very much, uh, nice of you to offer, but I think I'm okay. Um, don't really need any of those just at the moment. I'm not, I'm not actually ill, as far as I know, but thanks, thanks a lot anyway, thank you. But consider an alternative scenario, a rather more serious one. You've been in a hospital for a major operation. You're recovering on the ward, and the surgeon comes round. Well, she says the operation was a success, but I'm afraid that there's some bad news and then some good news. The bad news, I'm really sorry about this, is that you've got one of those hospital-acquired infections as a result of the surgery. It's quite a serious one. In fact, if we can't knock it on the head quickly, it's life-threatening. Could kill you. And to make matters worse, I'm afraid it's one of those superbugs that's very resistant to even really strong antibiotics. However, the good news is that we've got this brand new antibiotic treatment. You produce this little package of, of tablets. Brand new antibiotic treatment. It defeats even superbugs and it will kill this one of yours off in a day or two. Would you like some? What's your reaction? Like some? Like some? What do you mean, would I like some? Why haven't you given this to me already? Where is it? I want it now. My admittedly not very subtle illustration is simply designed to remind us that if someone is offering us good news that will solve a major problem for us, we're not interested if we don't think we've got the problem. But we are most certainly interested if we believe that we do have it. Paul's explanation of the Christian gospel in Romans is just a little bit like that. It makes little sense if we don't think there's a problem. The Bible word for the problem is sin. So in the time available this morning, I just want briefly to start us thinking about four questions, if I may. First one is, what is sin? You might think we know, but what is sin? Secondly, why is it a problem? Thirdly, who's got that problem? And fourthly, briefly, what can be done about it? What is sin? Not sure if you've asked anyone recently what they think sin is, but I wonder what they would say. Probably depends on who you ask and when. Most people, however, would talk about things they regard as sin, violence, sexual misbehavior, stealing, nowadays maybe harming the environment too. But in Romans, Paul doesn't start with individual wrongdoing. Instead, he goes way back to the created order and talks about the fracturing 
of our relationship with God. He makes it clear in our passage this morning that God is the creator and sustainer of our world. Everything good that we have comes from his hand. His character and love are seen in what he has made. However, we neither, says Paul, glorified him by representing him to his creation as his image bearers, nor did we reflect back to him the thanksgiving and adoration which is the proper response of all that he has made. We rejected that purpose, that calling, if you like. And we know what happens if we stop giving God his worth. The word worth, of course, is where we get worship from. We don't stop worshipping. Oh, no. We are hardwired to worship someone or something. We trade in the creator of the universe for things that we've made. Our modern idols, certainly in Western secular society, may not be little carved statues like those manufactured in ancient history, but they're real enough. The big three in our society, you could argue about them, but they're probably money, sex, and power. And the abuse of all of those involves grabbing things for ourselves. Effectively, we end up worshipping what we see when we look in the mirror. It's ultimately what we're doing. So that means that we reject the image that we bear and are effectively in a state of rebellion. And Paul says that our thinking as a human race became futile and our hearts, he says, were darkened. That surfaces, I suggest, most obviously when we think we know better than God about what makes for the good life. When we say, I don't need you, or perhaps in more contemporary language, you're not the boss of me. We construct a view of the world that we like and we live our lives as we like. We call it freedom. And that's actually mankind tragedy because as we shall see as we go through Romans, it's not freedom at all, it's slavery. We cut ourselves off from the relationship that we were created to have and which was designed by our maker to bring us unimaginable blessing and satisfaction. And it all starts with the failure to give God his rightful place. If we reflect, what might be the idols from which we need to turn? Financial success? Relationships into which we fail to admit God? The desire for control? to organize our world around our own comfort and convenience, reputation, image, the excessive pursuit of things which are otherwise good in themselves, like food and drink and holidays and sport and leisure, and you could go on. But then that moves us really, I think, onto our, onto our second question. Why is any of this actually a problem? Why can't I just live my life as I choose? Why would God have an issue with that anyway if he loves me, giving me these choices? Well, I think the answer is perhaps twofold broadly. Firstly, rebelling against God cuts us off from the good things that can only be properly experienced and enjoyed in relationship with him. 
but secondly, a determination to displace God from his rightful place on his throne leads nowhere good. In chapter 1, verse 24 of our reading, Paul talks about God giving over mankind to sinful desires. If we make choices, he allows us to experience the consequence of those choices. That's actually quite a disturbing idea. But I think it works something like this. Although God will warn and plead and show us where cutting him out leads in order to turn us to repentance and seek restoration of our relationship with him, he won't treat us like robots. Part of the glory of our humanity is our ability to make decisions and take responsibility for them. He won't take that away by forcing us to worship him or to obey him. That would be to destroy the pinnacle of what he's created, which is humankind. As a result, as the human race turns from the God, it sinks, turns from God, it sinks into the types of sinful behavior which occupy Paul from chapter 1, verse 24, right the way through to the end of verse 32. There's a pretty sobering list. Time will not permit us this morning to go through the list of the sins that he picks out for mention and to analyze them. But they include violence, greed, deceit, malice, sexual sins, arrogance, faithlessness, heartlessness. Each of them could have a talk or even a series all of their own. If, for example, you wanted to concentrate on something that the Bible mentions a lot, you might choose to focus on greed. If you wanted to reflect on something that seems to be particularly characteristic of our contemporary Western culture, you might think malice was especially relevant to think about, given the way in which hatred of those with opposing views is increasingly legitimized. But I believe that Paul's aim in raising all of these examples is not to take a pot shot at those who are guilty of committing any of these individual sins. Rather, it's to make the point that everything that we can identify in human behavior, which is against what God uh, intends for us and what he wants, is the result ultimately of the breach in our relationship with God caused by our rejection of him and of, and of his calling to us and of his purpose. They are signs of a created order which is seriously out of joint in ways which are personal to us and which poison and destroy our ordinary human relationships and which harm more widely our created world. Simply, if, you, if we give honor to God, his image in us will burn brighter and our humanity is enhanced. If we choose to worship other things, though, our humanity gradually degrades. I'm afraid, though, it doesn't end there. Romans is explicit, as is the Bible in other places, that God's judgment will eventually arrive. This is not a popular or a welcome theme, but it is inescapable. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, Paul says this, 
Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now the word wrath for us has particular negative connotations in our current usage. But as originally intended, wrath speaks simply of God's implacable hostility to all that is wrong in his world. All injustice, all rebellion against him causing pain and misery. And if you stop to think about it for a moment, if, faced with the evil that people do and the good that we fail to do, God just looked on and shrugged his shoulders in a sort of, well, it's not ideal, but never mind, kind of way, he could hardly be called good. Note, though, that God's judgment is not here described as zapping people guilty of sin A or sin B. Neither is he lashing out in rage at like some angry pagan deity at random. On the contrary, Paul here emphasizes God's love. Note his description of God's response to the human condition, kindness, patience, the desire to bring us to repentance. It is we, he says, who store up consequences of our sin rather than being a case of God itching to have a go at us and wipe us out. After all, if he was motivated by a desire to destroy rather than to save, human history would by now have given him ample excuse countless times over. But all this does mean that we will have to give a reckoning and face judgment, and that gives rise to an urgency. If we've never before responded to his offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness, the time to do so is now. Our third question, though, is, okay, if sin's a problem, who's got it? Surely not me. We love, don't we, deciding who's in the right and who's in the wrong. It's our specialist subject. We draw lines in human behavior between good people and bad people. Conveniently, somehow, when we draw lines in places... We're always on the right side of that line, aren't we? We're always, it's always drawn so that we can separate us, ourselves, from those from whom we like to be a bit distant. They're over there, they're the wrong side of the line, but we're okay. We haven't committed serious crimes. We do and say the right things, usually. We're up to date with correct, generally accepted attitudes. Wrongdoing is always somebody else's problem. But actually, if we're honest, we know that that doesn't really cut it. The tendency to put self first, to avoid the needs of others, to shut out compassion, is firmly rooted in all of us. The philosopher Alexander Solzhenitsyn, writing as a dissident in Soviet Russia, 
famously said in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Paul's very clear in Romans that nobody has any basis for claiming moral superiority over others. The message, which as you probably know is a, is a paraphrase of the Bible text rather than a strict translation, puts this very pithily in its rendering of chapter 2 verse 1. I rather like this. It says, if you think that leaves you on the high ground where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize others, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Christians, of course, can get this wrong quite easily. Most of us are pretty respectable and law-abiding folk who take everything in moderation and avoid, obviously, scandalous stuff. But as Paul explains in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we all have the same deep-down problem. No one is righteous, he says, not even one. So the answer to our question of who's got the problem is everyone, all of us, without exception. All are at risk, all stand in need of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. I wonder where we're drawing our lines between good and bad. Is there something in our lives that we've put in the area marked good, or at the very least, okay, when we know deep down that God calls it harmful? And how are we applying dividing lines to others? Are there people we're looking down on? And do we need to ask for forgiveness and humility? We said at the start that we were going to have to brace ourselves a bit to consider some bad news, and we've done that, I think. But it does rather beg our fourth question, what can be done about it? I hope that as we've been going through these early themes in Romans, both this morning and also last week, it's, it's possible for us all to see that God's response to the human predicament, his first response, is love. The desire to rescue rather than to see lives destroyed by a rebellion against him. This foreshadows tremendously good news. And that's going to be unpacked in the coming weeks, starting next Sunday when Neil will be uh, exploring with us what's meant by salvation. But I don't want to leave today's theme without saying just a tiny bit more about that. Our reading today began with Paul's words in chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Righteousness in biblical language doesn't mean self-righteousness. Neither does it have any connotations or flavor of being able to look down on others. It's got none of that sort of slightly unattractive, oh, you know, he's a bit smug type of feel to it. Instead, it speaks sometimes of God's justice, 
and sometimes of the idea of being in the right, being or being put right. So from the very start, that this is about how we can be put right with God by faith, how that fractured relationship we spoke about can be restored. Fast forward to the end of our reading, and we encounter a powerful restatement of that theme. In chapter 3, verses 22 to 25, we read this. This righteousness, and remember righteousness here means being restored to right relationship with God. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And so that tells us, in answer to the question of what can be done, that God's already done something very, very radical and decisive and effective. And that's the start of the good news bit. And that's where we'll leave it for this week. And there's more to come on that next. Rather than um, actually close with a specific spoken prayer, I'm just going to suggest that we are silent just for a moment. And in that silence that we invite God to draw alongside us, just speak to us about our lives. Ask him what it is he wants to say to us this morning and ask for hearts that are open to respond to him and just to see where that leads. So we'll just do that just for a moment as we, as we finish.